0: So we'll put your stand. We'll hide it. Oh, what about my gut? I was on the keyboard earlier. You should have heard me. (laughs) Oh, there it goes. (laughs) Okay, you better be on the words up there, young lady. Well, good morning. Before I start, I'd like to uh, just say what a sacred honor and a privilege it is to have the opportunity to open the Word of God this morning and, and explore what edifying words it holds for us. I want to thank Pastor Dave for the opportunity to do so, and my, I think my good friend uh, Ken would agree. It's a humbling experience to try to step into uh, Pastor Dave's shoes and uh, while well, he takes some time to spend with family. So it's a bit of a daunting task, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll make the most of it. I have the utmost respect for Pastor Dave, of course, and what he does on a regular basis to bring us the Word of God from this pulpit. It'll be good to see him back next week. So, Please take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. The book of Numbers, chapter 21. As we do so, I'll take a few minutes and uh, lay out some framework here uh, of of this story in order to supply some context. This account takes place during the Israelite exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land. The Israelites have been wandering for some time now and had already been to the doorstep of the promised land once before, where they had doubted the ability of God to lead them into the land, and as a result had been banished from it for an additional 40 years. This 40 years was to allow the rebellious generation to die off, and a younger one to rise up in its place. The people of Israel seemed to make a habit out of rebelling against God, often grumbling and complaining about their lot in life. Moses, who is appointed by God to lead the people, is often caught between God and his people as they rebel on a regular basis. As we'll see, the account we're about to explore is no exception. Moses' role often seems frustrating in the extreme. His frustration and his anger even led to his own banishment from entering the Promised Land. Moses has recently also lost his brother Aaron, the high priest, and his sister Miriam, The people are just about to leave a place called Mount Hor, where Aaron was recently uh, gathered to his people. He died there and and he went to be with the Lord. The situation that that we're about to see is also not unique. The cycle of sin and judgment can be seen with sad regularity throughout throughout the account of the Exodus. Indeed, this cycle continues to this day. The war between good and evil will not end until our Savior returns. Each one of us whether we know it or not, like it or not, or admit it or not, are caught up in this war, and there are no bystanders. Today's passage provides a wealth of teaching and analogy on what this war looks like, what our role is in it, and even how we are to emerge victorious from it. If you would please stand as we read from God's Word out of the book in Numbers. Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day and the blessing of freedom in allowing us to look into your word today. Lord, we pray that you'll give us ears to hear and hearts to understand as we open your word. We also pray, Father, that you bless us with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> I'm guessing many of us, if not most of us, are probably familiar with this story and possibly have read it numerous times. Most of us, or a lot of us, will be able are familiar with the analogies that God provides us as this story unfolds and may not be surprised as we open it up and enjoy what it has for us today. As we move through this passage, we'll work through a simple outline that reveals itself to us. We'll look at a few things. We'll see the nefarious nature of sin in verse 4 and 5. We'll look at the response of God To that sin in verse 6. And we'll see the response of God towards repentance as we close out verse 7 to 9. We'll also apply a few things to our daily lives uh, as a result and see God's message for us today. As we have seen, when this account begins, we come across Israel as about to leave Mount Hor. They've been camped there for a number of weeks or possibly even a month or two or longer. And they had just experienced one of the, uh, the loss of one of their beloved leaders, Aaron the high priest, the brother of Moses, whom the Lord had taken to himself while they were there. They set out and they were going to go around the land of Edom, which is significant because the Edomites had refused to let them go through their land and have an easier trip through their territory. So going around the land of Eden, this detour, Eden, Edom, I'm sorry. This detour may have led to some frustration and frayed nerves. Because this is where things begin to go downhill in this situation. When we look at verse 4 and 5, we will see how sin reveals its nefarious nature. Nefarious, by the way, is one of those really cool words. Uh, I had to look it up to make sure I had it right. But I took a quick look at dictionary.com, and uh, just in case you think I'm smarter than I am, I, I, I had to go there and get a proper definition. And the meaning of the word nefarious is extremely wicked or villainous. Sin definitely meets this criteria, and these verses will tell us how. In verse 4, we are told the people became impatient on the way. As they moved along, they began to get more and more frustrated with their circumstances. I'm sure we all can relate to this. We've experienced this type of thing. We have a bad day at the office. Things don't go as expected. We don't get anything done. We're less productive than we'd like. And uh, we come home. We've been getting impatient. It's building all day. We get out of our vehicle and Kick the dog and yell at the kids, or yell at the kids and kick the dog, or kick the kids and yell at the dog. (laughs) Hopefully, not that too much of that. But uh, people of Israel were at this point, and their impatience grew to the point where they began to verbalize their anger. And here's where we see the true nefariousness of sin: it fans those flames of impatience, and they begin to grow. And the Israelites become angry and even rebellious. Sin is so disgustingly deceptive. Take a look at some of the things that come out of the Israelites in verse five. And keep in mind, here they come. They're speaking against God to Moses, his representative. They're speaking against God. Keep in mind, this is the same God who performed mighty signs and wonders in their very presence. They have seen these things. They're eyewitnesses to to them. The 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the defeat of Pharaoh. God leads them daily in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night these are the people that are speaking against God at this point point. and if it's not bad enough to speak against God see how their sin takes root and grows they get in the face of Moses God's representative and begin to speak vehemently in lies and false accusations why did you bring us out of Egypt to let us die in the wilderness they go on they say there is no food and there is no water and then they go on and they say, We loathe this worthless food that didn't seem to exist a minute ago. We loathe this worthless food. You see how sin works, how it deceives and spreads and takes over one's frame of mind and blinds us to the truth? The Israelites have become blind to the incredible blessings of God that fill their daily lives. They say, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Don't forget there were generations of Israelites. They've been in Egypt for 480 years. There have been generations of their forefathers who have lived for nothing but to escape the slavery of the pharaohs and the cruelty they, had, they experienced there. Now they accuse the same God that rescued them of doing it just to bring them out in the desert and let them die. These are the same people that rejoiced as God took them out of Egypt and they plundered the Egyptians. In their blindness, they go on. They say, there's no food and no water Again. This is a bald-faced lie. These people complaining, hundreds of thousands of them, by the way, there's, this is not a small number of people, these people had that very day enjoyed bread and meat from heaven. They did not make it. They, they were provided it. On multiple occasions, they had seen God provide them water out of a rock in the middle of the desert. And they're saying, there's no food and no water. These people at one time had received these supernatural gifts from God with unrestrained joy. Now, they look upon these blessings with disgust. The gratitude they express, there is no food and no water. And they're caught up in the nefarious grip of sin. And they don't stop. They're impatient, they're angry, they're bitter, they're combative, and they're faithless. Then to top it off, they decide to get insulting. They go before God and they say, we loathe, we hate this worthless food. You ever seen a parent struggling to hold their temper in their face with a misbehaving child? You ever seen what happens when that child pushes that parent over the edge? I know that none of this happens in our homes here, um, so we might not be familiar with this, but this is what the people of Israel had done to God himself. Before we get to God's reaction, let's take a second to take a short look at the lesson these verses convey to us today. I don't know about you, but for those of you that are familiar with the story of the Exodus, a common reaction is, when you read about it, is not again. They're rebelling again, and you can't believe it. As Israel goes through cycles of being blessed by God, only to rebel against him again and again and again. This passage is not unique in this regard. Before we look on the children of Israel with the eye of judgment, let's look in the mirror of Scripture and realize how much we resemble these people. How we also get caught up and deceived by the nefarious nature of sin. If we are not alert, we too can be blinded to the blessings God has poured out on us in our lives. We can quickly become like that little child who begs constantly for a certain toy, only to cast it aside after playing with it for about three minutes. Sin is victorious in our lives when it deceives us into pursuing the idolatry of material goods, social or economic status, or the false belief that more is always better, and thinking that what we have is not enough, or that we are suffering needlessly. Ever struggled with this way of thinking? Ever complained about something that's truly a blessing from God? I know I have. I thought about this for a second, but it's actually pretty easy. Uh, One of my favorite complaints is chunky ice cream. I detest chunky ice cream. And I'll complain about it the whole time if you gave it to me. I'll, I'll sit there and eat it, but I'll complain about chunky ice cream until I'm blue in the face and pick the chunks out and set them on the side. It's just a personal thing, but you talk about complaining about a blessing from God... I don't think anybody here, very few of us, would say ice cream is not a blessing from God. There's an analogy in the chunks there, but I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> I do not like chunky ice cream. I would eat it, and I'd complain the whole time about how bad it is, but I'd still eat it. Now, ice cream may not be a serious complaint, but most of us can identify with complaints of a more serious nature. Children often say, you know, these toys are no fun anymore. I'm bored. The car is not nice enough house is too small or my spouse is not living up to my expectations all of them gifts from God sin may have gotten its evil grip on you when you find yourself complaining or even detesting the blessings God has been gracious enough to give you and you are also saying I loathe this worthless food instead of judging the Israelites in these verses realize that scripture is provided to us for a reason we should examine our own lives and be alert to the nefarious nature of sin. Let's move on. In verse 6, we begin to see God's response to that sin, to the rebellion that is facing him. Now, as human beings, our tendency is to minimize sin, everything about it. For us to have some understanding of God's reaction to sin, we must make an attempt to see sin as God does. As Pastor David puts it a lot of times, it is cosmic treason. God is perfect, and being perfect, he cannot overlook sin. He can't sweep it under the rug, he can't abide sin in his presence, and he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. God's justice is perfect. He cannot lower the bar on sin in any way. The Israelites have taken the blessings of God and thrown him back in, the, back in his face. They're in open rebellion and in sin and he responds swiftly. In verse 6 tells us then right then then the lord sent fiery serpents. When sin occurs, judgment follows. We see that sin has a bite, and in this case literally as well as figuratively. The consequences of sin are painful. As a side note, there seems to be much discussion on what fiery serpents actually are in this story. Some commentators focus on the possible appearance of these snakes. Apparently there are a number of venomous snakes in the Middle East that have a bronze-like appearance and look like something of bronze. Others refer to the fiery nature of these snakes being the intense burning pain experienced after being bitten. It may be a safe assumption that the reality of this may be a combination of the two factors that describe fiery serpents. The bottom line, the most important thing to keep in mind is number one, God sent them. He sent the snakes. They were numerous and they were deadly. We see that God lifted His protection from the Israelites. He no longer protected them from the snakes or their own sin. Up till now, the Israelites had traveled in relative safety from the elements and the predators around them. Now, they're left to their own devices. And many of them died. We also see that God's judgment is sweeping. It is real. And it is terrifying. The people had sinned. And the people are paying. God sent snakes among them. They did not discriminate in who they attacked. This is not pretty. Imagine snakes. And there's usually not too many fans of snakes in the room. But imagine snakes in large numbers attacking people. They're not afraid of people, they're after them. You would see seen people fighting to keep the snakes away. You would hear the screams of people that are wounded and dying. Venomous snake bites are notoriously painful. You would have seen people desperately trying to treat people that are already wounded. This was not a quiet or peaceful situation. And it was everywhere. God's judgment is sweeping. We also see that God's judgment on sin is not reversible. Many people died as a result, this tells us. This was not the first time the Israelites had been in this cycle of sin and judgment. We are told in passages before this, there are other occasions when they had incurred the wrath of God and had died by the thousands. On some occasions, by the tens of thousands as they faced the judgment of God. When we read these stories and these accounts, <clears throat> we find they serve as a sobering reminder of how prone we are to give in to our sinful nature and how quickly we forget how serious our sin is before God. His his justice is perfect. It is sweeping. When sin takes place, a debt is incurred that must be repaid. We must be alert to the nefarious nature of sin. It often starts very small, but before we know it, it becomes full-blown. It takes on a whole new aspect. How does God respond to repentance? Let's take a look. God, God responds to the repentance of the people in, in, in a different way. Thankfully, this is not where the story ends. People dying of venomous snake bites. We have seen God's perfect justice. We've seen his wrath unleashed in his response towards sin. As we move into the next few verses and take a look at how God responds to repentance, We see his perfect love and mercy also go on display. As the people suffer under the bitter fruit of their sin, they become remorseful and they repent. They understand they need to come before God, confess their sin, and beg his forgiveness. And this is precisely what they do they approach Moses and confess. In verse 7, we have sinned, we have spoken against the Lord. And against you. They asked Moses to go before God, seek his mercy, and ask him to take the serpents away. Moses does so, and just as God's justice is perfect, so are his love and mercy in providing a path to redemption. In verse 8 And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who sees it shall live. Moses does as he's commanded. He builds a bronze serpent, attaches it to a pole, he raises it up, and he sends out the word. Look to the serpent. Look and live. There's some observations here that I find fascinating in God's response to repentance. First of all, God's response does not remove the effects of sin. And it didn't even seem to provide immediate relief. The prayer Moses brought forward on the behalf of the people was for God to remove the serpents from them. God did not do so. He didn't remove the serpents. In fact, besides not removing the snakes as requested, it almost appears that God sits back and takes his time a little bit. People were dying, and God tells Moses to go make a bronze serpent. I'm guessing Moses did not have a bronze serpent laying in his tent. He had to go make this serpent. I'm sure he had skilled metal workers at his disposal, but it had to take a good while for them to make or build or forge this bronze serpent in the middle of a desert. It must have taken some time. It's also interesting to note that it would appear once the serpent was built and raised, the the snakes did not necessarily go away. Why does God respond like this? I believe the reasons he did so were very intentional and speak to us today just as much as they did to the Israelites thousands of years ago. Our sin, even though forgiven, still brings on consequences. Even after the bronze serpent was lifted up, the Israelites continued to get bitten and still had to endure the pain associated with the bite. While they had repented, the consequences of their sin were still a part of their life and could still have lethal results for those who refuse to repent. The same is true for us today. We live in a fallen world that has been irreversibly tainted by sin. Even though we can be forgiven of our sin, its consequences can create much difficulty in our lives. Why does God allow this? Let's go back to the passage and look at verse 9 once again. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the end of the story, or it seems like it. There's some things to take note of, part of the unsaid that's not there. God provides only one way for the Israelites to obtain relief from the results of their sin. They are to look to the serpent. The bite of that sin is what drove them to look to the serpent for salvation as the only way they could be saved. We're not told directly, but as we stated earlier, this likely was not a one-day event. It's entirely possible that it was necessary the bronze serpent remained with the Israelites throughout the Exodus and even beyond. The snake bites may have become a part of their life. In a case of tragic irony, uh, the serpent, this bronze serpent reappears in Scripture one more time. As when King Hezekiah goes to destroy it. Why does he destroy it? Because it itself had become an idol. 700 years after this, the snake was still there. So it tells us that snake had gone with the Israelites for a large part of their history. The serpent may have served as a, as a reminder of their constant need for salvation, not to mention the source of salvation from the result of their sin. The consequences of sin are all around us every day. These consequences make us aware of our desperate need that we have for a Savior. To sum this up, three simple takeaways we see illustrated in this passage. God's justice is perfect and requires satisfaction for sin. God's perfect love and mercy provide a way for rebellious sinners to repent and be saved from the judgment they deserve for that sin. And the consequences of sin surround us, and they drive us to seek a Savior that we desperately need. So how does this relate to us that are gathered here today? What do we do with this? Pastor Dave, along with many others, often makes a very truthful observation. We've heard it many times. There are two, two types of people on this earth, those who follow Jesus Christ and those who do not. He often follows it up with another thought. On any given Sunday, he is speaking to a group that consists of both types of people. Today is no exception. And this this passage contains a message for each group to hear and explore. But first, some general truths that apply to us all. Sin does have a nefarious nature. And it is after your life. As we have noted earlier, the tendency for those of us familiar with this story is to read them the stories about the rebellious Israelites and tend to look upon them in judgment. You know, not again. Are you people, what's wrong with you? You're you're rebelling against God. How could these people who are eyewitnesses to the incredible wonders and works that God performed keep failing to trust in him? These people, again, they had seen the 10 plagues. They had seen the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, how, how cool would that be? I mean... I've always wondered what that was... Okay, I'll stop there. But, you know, did you reach into the water and catch fish? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so they had seen these things. They received bread and meat from heaven every day. They got water from rocks. Another thing the Bible tells is their clothes and their shoes never wore out. It's amazing. Yet, they grumbled and complained. Are we any better We tend to judge these people for their lack of contentment and their unbelief, but how many of us have taken the blessings of God for granted? I would venture to guess most, if not all of us, have complained about our circumstances at one point or another, even while we're sitting on a stack of God's rich blessings, like chunky ice cream. We struggle with the same problem the Israelites did. We allow sin to creep into our lives and blind us to the wonderful riches of God's blessing that he pours out on us every day. We must be alert to the nefarious nature of sin. It will slowly erode our perspective until even our blessings are objects of revulsion to us. This method of attack has been a favorite of the evil one since the first whispers in the Garden of Eden. We must be alert and take stock of our lives. Focus on the multitude of blessings God has showered on us. Have you been taking them for granted? Are you at the point where you have begun to grumble against God and see his blessings as burdens? this passage is provided as a reminder to us. Realize that sin has a bite. It is bitter, and it is painful. and In the end, it may lead to death. Sin is utterly deceitful, and it starts in the smallest of ways. I'm just guessing, but very few people probably wake up and say, I'm going to go out and offend God today. I don't think many people start their day saying that. But all of us, every one of us, has given in and made those tiny choices that end up being full-blown sin. We must be alert to those seeds of sin that can so quickly take root in our lives. Do not lose sight of what sin is to God. It is cosmic treason. And the perfect justice of God will not allow it to go unpunished. You may say, I look at my life. I see my sin. Now what do I do? Again, let's go back to the passage. How are the Israelites relieved of the bite of their sin? In verse 9, God commands them, look to the serpent, look to the serpent and live. What are we to do with that? Are we supposed to build bronze serpents and hang them in our homes? Yeah, probably not. This is one of the beautiful things about Scripture. It all points in one direction. That serpent that Moses made and hung on a pole in the wilderness was a symbol a symbol of salvation that pointed ahead to the ultimate source of our eternal salvation from sin. Almost 1,500 years after Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness for the Israelites to get salvation from judgment, God in his perfect justice, love, and mercy lifted his own son, Jesus Christ, up on a cross to provide satisfaction for our sin and eternal life for all those who believe in him. How can we make this comparison? Well, Jesus himself tells us. If you take a look at John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, this comes out real quickly. We all know John 3, 16, but here's where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Of course, verse 16, just because we're here, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The serpent lifted in the wilderness points ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. God's command to us is the same as it was to the Israelites in the desert. To the Israelites he says, look to the serpent. To us he says, look to the cross. Look to the cross and live. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Once again, God's love and mercy are put on display as we see the tremendous blessing he pours out on us in the grace of his salvation. Did the people of Israel deserve the love and mercy of God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, God often came close to wiping them from the face of the earth. We also see that or several times Moses intercedes for the people of Israel as God says, I'm just going to wipe them out. Do we deserve any of God's love and mercy? Do we deserve to escape his wrath? Not one bit. In fact, daily we offend him more and more. We are just as bitten by by sin as the Israelites were. And just as God graciously provided them with a means of salvation, he gives us one as well. He lifted up his own son on the cross, to pay the debt that we owe God for our sin. How do we lay hold of that amazing gift and claim it as our own? Look to the cross and believe. Does that sound too easy? Too simple? It truly is. Beautifully so. Take note. Remember, how many ways did God give the Israelites to save their lives from the venom of the snakes? just one. Give them one way. Just as there was only one way for the Israelites to be saved, there is only one way for us to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Look to the cross. God did not tell the Israelites to look to the serpent and do something else. He didn't tell them to look to the serpent, go to the pharmacy, get some snake bite oil, and rub it all over yourself. He said, no, you just need to look. Look to the cross. There's one way. God's command is the same to us. We are to look to the cross and nothing else. Why? It's quite quite simple actually. There is simply no other source for our salvation. There is no other instruction for God to give. There's no other way. We cannot be saved in any other way or by any other thing or by any work we can do. There's no money, power, toys, social status. We can't behave a certain way and we can't do any work to earn our eternal salvation. There is nothing and no one else on earth or in heaven that could provide us salvation from our sins. This is why God's command is so simple. There really is only one way to salvation. Just as the people in the desert cannot be saved by anything but looking to the serpent, we cannot be saved by anything else but looking to Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no other way. As stated previously, this passage contains a message for both those who follow Christ and those who do not. For those who may not yet know the name of Jesus Christ and do not claim him as their Lord and Savior, who do not look to the cross as the one and only source of their eternal salvation, you need to know you are in a desperate situation. I don't say this in a spirit of condemnation, but of urgent warning. The simple truth is this, we are all eternal creatures we will all spend eternity somewhere. Scripture tells us, when God created us, we were created perfect. Our purpose was to glorify Him. He gave us a choice, obey Him, live in complete joy and peace with Him, or disobey, commit cosmic treason, and face the consequences of our sin, eternal death. Man, in his folly, chose to disobey God and bring himself under eternal condemnation. As a result, each one of us was born owing God an eternal debt to satisfy his perfect justice. How do we escape this debt and once again come to a right standing before God? As we've already seen, God in his perfect love and mercy provides us a way, of ju- a way for us to escape judgment and stand innocent before him. Look to the cross. There is a person willing to pay the debt that you owe God. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came to earth and lived a sinless life. He was put to death on the cross to provide payment for the sins of all who do one thing. Look to him as our Lord and Savior. Scripture reveals to us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus Christ to be sin for us. The payment for your eternal life is there for the taking. What must you do? Look to the cross. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you too can be saved. You can do this right where you're at. In your pew, in your car, or on your couch in front of your TV. I'd like to listen to Steve Lawson, a preacher that's uh, quite interesting to listen to. He's very, very uh, um, charismatic and, and enjoyable, I find. But he has a, a little rant he goes on that I find so powerful. And if you get the opportunity, to look it up on YouTube. But I'll give you a little taste of what he says Why would you wait? Look to the cross. Do not wait another second. The time is now. Let today be the day of salvation. Salvation is offered to you. Do not let it pass by. Do not waste another hour. Do not refuse the love and mercy of God in heaven. Look to the cross. The time is now. Hell is real. The good news is, so is heaven. And it awaits those who look to the cross and believe. For those of us that are numbered as believers, this passage speaks loudly to us as well as we have seen in a number of ways it says it, it tells us to keep our perspective right if you're looking to the cross your gaze will be upward scripture reminds us to fix our eyes upon jesus if we're focused on the things above the things of this life will matter little and we will not surrender to the nefarious attacks of the devil the world around us and our own sinful nature the fleeting things of this world will cease to matter I find it ties in beautifully with Ken's message last week. Do not love the world. You're in love with the world, you are not looking upward at the cross. Keep your gaze upward. Look at the cross and live. We also have an awesome responsibility. Responsibility is to carry a message to those around us who enter our daily lives. This message is urgent, it is also exciting. Let's take a look at the urgency for just a quick second and go back to the passage. Once again, I want you to take a few minutes and picture the scene as it's described for us. Put yourself in the, the sandals of the Israelites, if you would, for a few minutes. I want you to really imagine hordes of snakes with fangs coming toward you. They're coming toward you, they're coming toward your loved ones, and they're attacking these people. They're attacking your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. People you know well and love dearly. You see these people in agony, screaming as the venom courses through their veins. You know, you know they're about to die. But you also know, if you can just get them to look at the serpent on a pole, they'll live. You have a life-saving message. How do you know? Probably because you've been bitten yourself, perhaps more than once. You yourself have looked to the serpent and been given the wonderful gift of life. I must ask, what would you be doing with that precious information? Would you keep it to yourself while you watch your friends and neighbors and co-workers and loved ones die in agonizing death? Probably not. You would probably be running frantically from person to person, telling them, look! There's a serpent. Look at the serpent. Just look. You'd be desperate trying to get the word out fast enough. You'd be conscious of the little time that you have to get to these people and save them and give them that life-saving message. Again, Ken reminded us last week, time is short. You're standing and you said, tick, 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 tick. Time is short. You would be desperate in reaching these people. We would not rest as long as we saw another person that we could reach and give them the life-saving information. We could save them the suffering they are under as a result of their sin. You might encounter somebody that is unwilling to look at the serpent. And you go tell them, hey, look at that serpent on a pole over there. You might get a person to say, you know, I don't buy that. A bunch of old wives tales. That's not going to help me at all. And you would find yourself begging them imploring them, saying, I I was bitten, I got bit, I'm saved, Fred over here is saved, Bill over here is saved, all you need to do is look. That's all you need to do. You'd be begging them to look at the serpent. We can all see where this is going. People around us are dying. They're headed for the fires of hell, and we know the way to life. We have a life-saving message. What on earth would keep us from sharing such precious information with a person that will die without it? I'm preaching myself here as well. Can the words frantic or desperate ever be applied to describe our evangelistic efforts? I know I stand convicted on that count. Time is short. People have been bitten by sin and are dying. We must get that word out. There is a way to be saved. Our message is urgent. It's also very exciting. What is the first thing you want to do when you've seen or experienced something totally awesome? Right? You want to share it. In today's world, you tell everyone you go take selfies and you put it on fake book and you put it all over the internet and say, hey, look at this. This is really cool. Um, and and people find that interesting. Um, we want to share things with people. And we do. My son Caden and I uh, have some, some experience with this. Uh, you know, we, we get kind of geeked out about things in the night sky. And we'll be outside some nights and we'll be looking at stuff and um, we'll grab the binoculars or sometimes a telescope and, and we'll see amazing things. It's incredible what you can see at night. The rings around Saturn, the moons of Jupiter, you know, the, the, the craters on the moon. Um, we, the comet the other night, we were out there looking at that, it was, it was very cool. And we uh, tend to look that, at that stuff and it's, it's very exciting. A common reaction we have? Well, we need to share this with somebody. Somebody else needs to see. We're looking at this. Let's get somebody else because this is so cool. Usually, this turns out to be mom. You know, Caden will go run in the house Hey, mom, it's 30 below, but it's clear out and we can see the moons of Jupiter. And mom's sitting on the couch in her blanket and her book going, Huh, that's cool. Sometimes it works. <laughs> We'll get her out there and we'll get the token look. You know, yeah, those are cool, see you later. I'm going back to my blanket. And so, but we're excited. We want to share these things because we find them very exciting. In our junior high Veritas class, quite often we talk about our witnessing. And one thing we talk about, what would our witnessing look like if we were to get, the, to get the opportunity to look into heaven for 30 seconds, 10 seconds? What would our witnessing look like if we got that look? what would it do to us? It would probably be impossible to restrain ourselves from telling others. You've got to see this. You've got to see this. You need to know. We want to, we'd, we'd be so excited to tell everyone. We all get excited by many things. How about saving lives? How about saving eternal life? What do you think happened once some of these Israelites got bit, looked to the serpent, and got healed? You think they just sat there and, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. I don't think they did that. I, I, I have to imagine they saw the guy next to him writhing in agony, and they probably started jumping up and down like, hey, Bill, check this out. <laughs> I got healed. You've got to see that snake. You've got to look. I'm sure there was also, in the, in the face of all this suffering, there was unmitigated joy at the knowledge that they were able to be saved by looking at this snake on a pole. They probably sprinted from victim to victim, saying, hey, have I got some good news for you? Does that hurt? Take a look. Look over here. This works. Some crazy ones might have said, here, bite me again. I'll show you. Anyway, they could not wait to spread the word. Look to the serpent. Their eagerness, their joy, their excitement to spread the life-giving news probably flowed out of them to their friends, family, and neighbors like to invite the worship team to come up as we begin to close here. The thing we see here provides us a great object lesson for today. The joy we have as followers of Jesus Christ and in our inheritance of eternal life should be so conspicuous that others ask, where do you get that? How, how do you have that joy? Where does it come from? Our message is exciting. The excitement we feel should drive us to reach those who do not know the life-saving news of the glorious gospel of Christ and share it with them. Just picture it, sitting next to somebody and saying, have I got some good news for you? If there ever was a good time to spread this good news, this is it. People are searching. The world's gone crazy. People are looking for answers. They're looking for truth and they're looking for hope. The forces of evil seem to be running rampant through our society and people are lost without Christ we know the good news we know the story we know Christ is returning soon we have a life saving message and now is the time to get it out what must we do to be saved look to the cross look to the cross of Christ believe in him And you shall be saved. I have a final song, a few thoughts in a minute. Jason, go ahead. Let's stand. He became sin who knew no sin that. Bye,